Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. The late 1800s was a good time for art museums in America. Uh, The Metropolitan Museum and the Boston MFA were both founded in 1870, the Philadelphia Museum in 1876, the Art Institute of Chicago in 1879, etc., etc. Collecting and and conservation and connoisseurship were on the rise. Museums were springing up everywhere. And not all of them were major urban institutions with wealthy industrialist financial backers. Um, Some of them were the efforts of small groups or even of individuals who just had a passion Um, or what some might call an obsession. Now, today we're going to take a look at the story of one remarkable example of this, Uh, a Vermontian, an amateur historian who took an eclectic fixation and turned it into an important legacy, Um, not just his legacy, but the legacy of his community of Middlebury, Vermont, and of communities around him. And at the very heart of that story is one unassuming object, a Windsor chair that in a very unusual way, tries to tell its own story. So this is the story of Henry Sheldon, and here to tell us about it is Dr. Ellery Fouch, Assistant Professor of American Studies at Middlebury College. Ellery, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Now, Henry Sheldon was born into a farming family in 1821, and you know I just want to point out in a dramatic understatement that museum studies was not a typical career path at the time, uh, (laughs) particularly not for someone with his background. Now, so I want to understand what led him down that uh, very unusual track. Was there something about Henry that set him apart already as a young person? Oh, that's such a great question. I think uh, in many ways, Henry Luther Sheldon was kind of a displaced Renaissance man, um, a man of many talents and interests and curiosities. And he had this kind of wide range of abilities and curiosities. Um, He was a great musician. um, And he was from a family that was not especially wealthy. Um, They were comfortable, but he didn't have the kind of massive fortune that so many of the Uh, collectors or museums that we think of as founded by an individual um, have. And so throughout the 1800s, he was working a variety of jobs. And it seems like his interest in collecting really was sparked around 1875 and 1876, this time of a lot of national enthusiasm and interest Uh, for American history and the American colonial past. Um, He purchased his first object that year for a collection, uh, a Roman coin that apparently he paid a dollar for. We still have it. It's uh, framed in um, its own case. And I love that. Everyone has their, you know, starting object. The exactly. <laughs> the the first way. taste. Um, but but just he, to, you know, to, to back up a little, because, you know, as you mentioned, it's he's uh, actually later in life by the time he really sort of comes around to this um, set of interests. And, you know, I wonder if we can say a little more about sort of how um, his personality came to be attracted to that sort of thing. Um 
because you know he so he comes to Middlebury as a 20 year old in in 1841 I believe mm -hmm. and then you know he he he's doing as you say a wide variety of different jobs I mean he's working for the postal service um what you know what was he sort of up to um in those decades before he uh became the collector that that you know him as <laughs> yeah absolutely he uh, ran a restaurant and helped um, with a with a colleague established a saloon and oyster house. Um, for a while, he worked for the railroad as kind of the station agent, um, in addition to his duties as a postal clerk. And he eventually became the town clerk. Um, in addition to his uh, kind of passion or volunteer work as an organist for St. Stephen's Episcopal Church here in town. And I think in some ways that uh, kind of exposure to or work with a lot of paper, <laughs> like with the postal service, uh, with the post uh -huh. office or uh, the railway or recording births and deaths and things like that. He was maybe an early it's anachronous to talk about this interest in data, but I think he did have this kind of interest in the mm. ephemera of daily life and making some sort of more permanent record related to it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I, th I wonder if there's also a sort of an aesthetic element to speaking about his um, musicianship. Um, I I would say, you know, a disproportionate number of the antique collectors that I know are either musicians or have some kind of musical interest. Oh, marvelous. Um, like it's almost an Epicurean <laughs> kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he particularly did... maybe, uh, you know, organ music in an Episcopal church somehow seems very appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely. And he was involved in the upkeep of church, uh, of the church. Um, but I was thinking too about the ways in which uh, in some of those years, he also owned and operated a music business um, which dealt not only in sheet music, um, but also rented out musical instruments um, to oh, wow. people in the region. Yeah, so he would he would come into people's homes and tune their pianos. Um, there was a melodeon that he frequently rented out. Uh, we have an oboe in the collection that has a sticker indicating it was uh, from his shop. So, yeah, this this kind of trade in objects. Um, that produce both aesthetic effects of music um, and are themselves beautifully worked objects in many instances. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so now we get back to his Roman coin, ah. which he purchased <laughs> for a dollar. And so he's, he's first showing an interest in uh, what we might think of as a sort of more typical kind of collecting. Um, what, what does that look like? Yeah, he had started collecting autographs, I think, as a younger man, um, as many young people in the 19th and maybe even early 20th century did. Um, and he soon became an avid coin collector. We also know that in 1876, he did go to Philadelphia to see the Centennial Exposition. Hmm. And he, we have a little notebook where he recorded some of the sites that he saw. There are also these tantalizing sketches of what seems to maybe be a mastodon skull, um, that he's he's looking at a lot of the displays and objects and artifacts and realizing maybe the kind of stories that objects can tell. And it seems to, to me at least, that there's this 
excitement about the possibility of telling the story of a small town and its founding alongside these kind of grand national narratives that he might have seen in Philadelphia. It's interesting that you would mention a mastodon skull or, or something like it, because, you know, that's um, obviously it's a natural history um, sort of object rather than a human history sort of object. And yet, um, you know, so many of these late 19th century museums uh, seem to bring those two together um, Absolutely. You know, with specimens alongside uh, artifacts. Absolutely. There wasn't this uh, kind of division that we usually think of today with the, the two cultures of art and science being so separate. Um, and Henry was really omnivorous in his collecting. He invited um, people from across the town, and maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, um, but he invited a whole range of objects. His early collection, ledgers, um, both, both the list of purchases and the list of donations include things like meteorites, coral, shells, um, alongside things like a musket used in the French and Indian War, um, huh. a sword from the Battle of Bennington, things like that. Yeah, some of the more traditional objects. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so where did this idea come from of starting to put a, a museum together? Well, it seems like he started this kind of private collection of the coins and the autographs and things like that, and maybe started sharing it with, uh, with friends. And then I think through his work as town clerk, um, he became really passionate about recording the history um, of the town, not just its um, kind of eminent uh, people and first white settlers of the town of Middlebury, um, but some of the records of everyday life, the births, marriages, and deaths. Um, and again, he had this very omnivorous appetite. Um, he was curious about early, um, the kind of trades and crafts that people did. We have several tar buckets, <laughs> for example. Right. Um, in addition to trying to collect, for example, every item ever printed in the town of Middlebury, the pamphlets, the sheet music, the newspapers, um, books, and so on. And um, so he often solicited things either in the newspaper or from talking to his friends and started amassing them and organizing them um, in this boarding house that he had been living in. Yeah, there's this um, really telling quotation uh, from from Sheldon in, in these early years of the museum where he says, I have spent all my leisure the past year trying to benefit future generations by preserving the handiwork of the early settlers of Middlebury, books and all printed matter, manufactured articles representing all the different occupations of the early pioneers, which I have called a museum. And, and it's exactly it's telling because, you know, it speaks to what you're talking about, which is this um, uh, this omnivorous quality, this sense that almost, I mean, it's a hoarding mentality, <laughs> right? It's the sense that everything is important in some way, in one way or another, and that um, keeping it, storing it, preserving it is somehow a, a self-justifying act. But then he also says that um, he's, that the purpose of this is to benefit future generations. Um, well, do you have a sense, you know, whether it's concrete or, or speculative about what that really meant? I mean, what kind of benefit was he trying to bring to 
future generations or even to his own generation. Yeah, this is such a such a great evocative quotation uh, from him and a, a wonderful question about his practice. I think in many ways there is this interest in preserving for posterity the things that you don't even yet know might be important to the future, <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm. Um, one of the things that I love about this museum and collection is its eclectic nature and the ways in which it was very much a, a kind of middle-class museum. It's not a collection of capital A art, although there are some amazing uh, paintings and especially uh, works of early Vermont furniture. But it's it's not a collection solely devoted to the kind of highest productions of human craft um, or the most finely wrought material objects um, with kind of silver repoussé candle sets, <laughs> candlesticks right. and uh, tea sets and so on. But again, things like the kinds of tools that people developed for their cider presses and their apple coring uh, processes, um, the tar buckets that they used, the kind of um, material culture of everyday life in northern New England um, that actually with the kind of uh, material turn in the the study of, of art and history and also the growing interest over the course of the late 20th century in the people's history, um, history not just of kind of eminent folks and political leaders or um, military leaders, but everyday life, I think, is really beautifully encapsulated in this collection. And it, in some ways, it seems like he might have known that. Um, one of the other parts that I think is fascinating is that late in life, he traded his coin collection, which by that point was massive um, and quite expansive, crossing centuries and continents. He traded that very uh, noteworthy collection to Middlebury College for their collection of newspapers. Um, mm. And I think that is a really interesting window into what he valued and what he thought about, um, what he thought had value in all senses of the, of the word. Um, and even as we, you know, starting with the microfilm movement <laughs> um, and now with digitization, there's perhaps less emphasis on the original original copy, as it were, um, it was still that collecting impulse, that desire to archive a copy of every day of every page of the newspaper that now enables so much of our historical research. Um, so I think there was amazing foresight in the ephemera of daily life. Um, so you're saying it really has benefited future generations? Absolutely. I think there's maybe part, and this goes to both the motivation and kind of our, our historical interest in it. Um, so much of what he's preserving too, I, I think in one of his notices asking about early pamphlets, um, you get a sense that he realizes that a lot of this history is endangered at that moment, um, that Papermaking mills, for example, are asking people to send in their rags and their old um, pamphlets to be remade. Um, and there are so many important 
buildings, historical buildings that are being uh, demolished to make way for parking lots or urban expansion Mm -hmm. and new buildings. And I think he sees this change happening um, and wants to have a material record of it. So, you know, it's a curious thing about passion project museums like this one that often, you know, intentionally or not, they uh, their collections reveal the idiosyncratic interests of their creators. Absolutely. Um, and, and one piece that's exhibited in the Henry Sheldon Museum does even more than that. Um, it was actually made by Henry himself, and it looks like a Windsor chair, um, but it's called the Relic Chair. What is this, um, and, and how did it come about? Absolutely. Um there is this really marvelous, eclectic, kind of funky-looking chair um, that is the form of kind of a, a comb-back Windsor chair um, currently on the second floor of the museum. It's painted kind of a light gray-blue, um, but it has two rows, uh, two upper rows of spindles, uh, which are variegated colors of kind of natural wood, which draws your eye to it a little bit. Um, And on closer inspection, absolutely, those two rows, each spindle comes from a different historical artifact, uh, ship, site, landmark. Um, It is absolutely this, as you mentioned, a relic chair um, that Henry Sheldon designed over the course of 1884, um, assembling different pieces, different fragments of wood from different historical sites. He also explicitly wrote um, to kind of far-flung correspondents asking them to send them to send him pieces of wood. Um, most notably, I think he wrote to uh, Martha Patterson, um, the daughter of Andrew Johnson um, in East Tennessee to ask her to send a fragment of Andrew Johnson's tailor shop. Um, and she had the, the Green <laughs> County Court Clerk um, in East Tennessee, William H. Piper, ship off a fragment of uh, that kind of log cabin looking edifice um, to Henry Sheldon all the way up in Vermont. Um, wow. Yeah. So I think there's this, it's this really wonderful embodiment of assembling these different fragments of the historical past, many of which were kind of under threat of being demolished at that moment um, and assembling them together. Yeah, I, I I love that this is just, it's just plain fun, you know? It, it, I think it, so. <laughs> this is not an attempt to sort of take precious historical objects and preserve them and conserve them and, you know, put them in the most flattering possible display case. No, mm-hmm. this is taking objects that are by themselves maybe interesting, but probably not valuable or certainly not the sort of thing that um, a typical museum would seek out and then transform them and craft them and make something totally new out of it. That's just sort of just plain fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, I love that. This is such a different concept from the sort of work that that happens at, you know, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, just for example. You know, the director of the PMA is not going around and collecting bits and bobs from random places and cutting them <laughs> up and making things out of them and, and putting his own handiwork in the exactly. cabinets. Um, would, I mean, what does this tell us about 
um, about Henry's concept of a museum and and the purpose that he saw it serving and and how that might have been different from the purpose of other museums uh, of the period. Yeah, I I think it gives us some insight into what was really a creative practice in many ways. Like you said, he wasn't just assembling artifacts and kind of cataloging and classifying them, um, but remaking them in a lot of uh, interesting ways. Unfortunately, um, his original arrangement of objects uh, doesn't survive for the most part. Um, we'll maybe get to that later, how the museum has been transformed in the subsequent decades. Um, but this this chair, which he referred to as a memorial chair, reveals, yeah, this kind of creative delight in assemblage and in making meaning. He's making a new historical memorial object um, from this kind of vast array of history. And in that way, it seems almost like a museum in miniature. Um, this wasn't the only time he did this practice. Um, some of the delight of going through the collections has been finding other artifacts he made, like a, a silver goblet he purchased from uh, Gorham for his sister's wedding. And he included some of the coins from his coin collection. Um, he had them attached to that goblet with chains to mm. represent spans of time and space. Um, and that's a very old tradition of uh, you know, silver drinking vessels um, combined with coins. Absolutely. I, I, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I think I, I also want to maybe clarify that of course, Henry wasn't alone in this fascination with relics. A lot of people were um, collecting fragments from, say, George Washington's coffin um, or the treaty elm uh, from Pennsylvania um, connected to William Penn's uh, treaty with the Lenape um, or Connecticut's right. Charter Oak. And there was kind of a practice for collecting these artifacts and sometimes transforming them into aesthetic objects uh, like acorn-shaped earrings from the Charter Oak um, or tiny, yes. tiny goblets. But the practice of relic furniture assembled from a broad variety of sources does seem to be, um, it's more rare. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I love these, uh, you know, pieces of the true cross, essentially. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so a very sacramental element. This is uh, maybe getting back to his Episcopalianism. Indeed. <laughs> um, were people interested in, in what he was doing? I mean, were there visitors to the museum? Yes, his museum was uh, fairly well attended. It had a fully functional kind of board of directors or board of trustees. Um, and there, from looking, I worked with my students on the uh, collection ledgers um, on transcribing those kind of handwritten 19th century ledgers working from scans. Uh, we've now made a Excel spreadsheet database kind of um, kind of thing. And we got a sense of the really wide range of contributions that he was receiving from people, not only in Middlebury, um, but kind of traveling salesmen would bring things by. Extended relatives from Sheldon's own family uh, would mm. bring things in for a family reunion. 
um, I, I think there was a way in which he was seen as kind of an eccentric. Uh, you know, he was a bachelor living in what was a museum and transforming even the objects that he himself used every day. Um, for example, his shaving cup and his shaving brush uh, are part of the museum. He uh, attached a note to a razor saying it was the used the first and last time he had a shave. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a tiny tin. And th- this is relevant, actually, because, um, uh, you know, I encourage people to go to magazineantiques.com slash podcast to see pictures um, because Henry Sheldon himself, he looked eccentric um, <laughs> in these photographs we have of him. And, Bless him. <laughs> uh, yeah, including, of course, a Merlin-style beard. Indeed. Exactly. He had a... Uh, there's a small tin where he collected four of his teeth that had been extracted over the years with the kind of dates that the (laughs) that he went to the dentist um and he was also increasingly becoming increasingly deaf which i imagine must have been an immense tragedy for him for a person who loved music so much um to have to give up that aspect of his of his life and his creative practice and so i think in many ways uh rather than music as a as a creative output the museum uh filled that role um but absolutely for his um i'm trying to remember which birthday uh in 1904 um he staged a kind of elaborate birthday outing um in which he had collected a a carriage that uh former president monroe had ridden in on a visit to Vermont, and Henry assembled all of, uh, let's see, a group of, I think, three or four other older men of the village, lent them top hats from the museum collection, um, <laughs> and a banner, I think a flag that was flown at the Battle of Plattsburgh um, from the War of 1812 and paraded through the town. And so (laughs) this kind of staging of ceremonial spectacle, um, I think, is really remarkable. I think I have an idea for my next birthday. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) I just want to take a minute to say thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the show, there's one really quick and effective way to help us out, and that's to go to the podcast app where you're listening right now and leave us a rating and a review. This helps new listeners find curious objects, and it helps me to feel really grateful. As always, you can see pictures of the relic chair, Henry Sheldon's excellent beard, and more at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast, or on the magazine's Instagram at antiquesmag, or on my Instagram at objectiveinterest. And if you'd like to get in touch with ideas for new episodes or thoughts about this episode, you can reach me at curiousobjects.com podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. And here, once more, is Ellery Fouch. One problem with um, a passion project museum like this is that its well-being depends on the dedication and labor Mm -hmm. of a single person. Um, And when that person isn't uh, around or able to do the work anymore, things can fall apart quickly. Um, So tell us about what happened to the Henry Sheldon Museum um, in, in the twilight of his life. 
Yeah, this is a great point. Um, Henry, this really was a labor of love uh, for him. He was passionate about collecting. And actually, I think in um, many instances, reading his diary, there's this really fascinating collapse between domestic labor and the labor of the museum. And so almost every day, there's an entry in his diary of, of what he's done for the museum that day. And it's sometimes things like painting the walls or um, settling, copying account books. But repeatedly, there's this invocation of ironing newspapers and then sewing them into bound volumes, um, mm. which I just think is such an interesting collapse of kind of domestic labor brought into the context of museum mm. labor and museum collections, um, maybe devalued yeah. in one aspect of the, of the world, um, but then this really important aspect of preservation uh, for the mu museum itself. But absolutely, Henry uh, was doggedly working on the museum all the days of his life. Um, and after his death, as you suggest, um, there was kind of this period of uncertainty he had a board of trustees. People still knew that there were interesting collections there. Um, but after Henry's death in 1907, things kind of, the, the momentum was gone. Um, there was a custodian uh, who still cared for the collections, but it wasn't really open to the public. It wasn't very much of a vibrant part of the community anymore. Um, yeah. And my friend and colleague David Stemeshkin is working on a kind of history of the Henry Sheldon Museum. And he's been working a lot from these manuscripts um, that were assembled by a man on the Middlebury faculty, W. Storrs Lee, or two men on the Middlebury faculty, W. Storrs Lee and Arthur Healy, who in the 1930s, I think, were interested, actually, they were motivated by college history. They were, um, Storrs Lee, I think, was working on a book about the history of Middlebury College, and he was told that there was this great collection. Um, it is kind of uh, entertaining or amusing or ironic uh, that in the early years of its founding, the college did not maintain its own archive. Most of the early mm. papers related to uh, Middlebury College were collected by Sheldon, in fact. Um, wow. So the story is that uh, Storsley managed to convince the custodian to let him into this locked building that had become pretty dusty and out of use, um, kind of a, a storehouse more, and was overwhelmed with excitement <laughs> about all of the collections within. And he yeah. and Arthur Healy, apparently, um, of course, the 1930s is a big moment for uh, another colonial revival and fascination with American history, but in a very different aesthetic than that of the kind of late Victorian era of Henry's kind of cabinets of curiosity almost. And so Healy and Storrs Lee apparently are the kind of duo that revived interest in this collection, thinking it could be a great resource for the community for the college, um, and maybe even for the nation. Um, they revived the Board of Trustees and actually had this really active um, 
group of donors and collectors, um, Arthur Frankenstein from San Francisco was on the board of trustees for a while, which I find really fascinating. A man who was interested in uh, Trump Loy painting and the contemporary work of Andy Warhol. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And so there was this uh, real energy and vitality around it as well. Of course, it's never had that kind of huge endowment or extremely wealthy collector to underwrite that future. And so it's really relied on kind of community support and again, the kind of passion of the people who work for and with the museum. So what role would you say a small community museum like Henry's play that that isn't already served by larger art museums and museums of history? Hmm. I think for rural communities especially, um, there's a way in which the Sheldon Museum in particular, and I think other historical societies elsewhere maybe, um, can serve as this uh, repository for history and also means of helping people make meaning of our current lives and our current experiences. Um, thinking about the losses of the past, whether it's the influenza epidemic of 1918 um, and how it might parallel our own moment with COVID um, and the kind of I think we all very acutely feel that we're living through a significant historical moment, or we hope it's <laughs> a brief historical period. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that role of making meaning of not only the past, but also of the present can be really crucial. They often have wonderful insights into the lives of daily people um, of of the past. And so that bridging of historical empathy, I think, is really um, powerful as well. Are there any other lessons that you think um, historians and, and collectors today could take away from Henry's project? One of the things I think is really marvelous about Henry Sheldon is the way that he didn't I think in some ways it might have been seen as problematic for a while, but in some ways it's kind of wonderful. He didn't lose track of his own subjectivity. <laughs> he mm. he wasn't necessarily always working with an objective lens, and he acknowledged his own interests and excitement and kind of realized the importance of recording his own life as well. Um, and I think sometimes there's a an impulse to be dispassionate <laughs> and remove ourselves from the story as historians or scholars or researchers or educators. Um, and I, I think Henry's practice has maybe helped me think about my subjectivity or um, kind of the the place of myself or my own creativity, the place where I could be creative in recording and crafting aspects of um, my own story. I think back to um, 
Henry loved playing cards with his friends, and he often held these memorial games um, on a, the birthday of a friend who had died. And he often inscribed even these decks of kind of quotidian playing cards with uh, this is the deck of cards that we used in the celebration of my 70th birthday. <laughs> um, mm. This is the stack of the deck of cards that we used for Zacchaeus Bass's, you know, the anniversary of his birthday, the first since his death. And I think that it transforms these decks of interesting ephemera into really meaningful, almost memorial objects that are so much more about human experience. Um, and I, I think I keep coming back to grief, uh, unfortunately, and maybe that's just where my my mind is right now uh, with COVID. Um, but again, that sense of of marking time, of holding space for human experience, even if it's something as seemingly uh, ephemeral or meaningless as a game of cards, um, an acknowledgement that that can have real and deep and true meaning. That's wonderful. Um, plenty of food for thought there, I think, for all of us. Um, Thank you, Ellery. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been such a treat to get to chat with you about Henry Sheldon. That's our program for today. Hope you had fun listening. Thanks to Ellery Fouch, who, again, is assistant professor at Middlebury College in Vermont. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. Thank you.